Welcome to the Everything Coworking Podcast, where every week I keep you updated on the latest trends and how-tos in coworking. I owned and operated coworking spaces for eight years and then served as the executive director of the Global Workspace Association for five years. And today I work with hundreds of operators and community managers every month, allowing me to bring you thought-provoking operator case studies and inspirational interviews with industry thought leaders to help you confidently stay on top of what's important and what you can apply to your own role in the co-working industry. Welcome to the Everything Coworking Podcast. This is your host, Jamie Russo. Thank you for joining me. So today we are going to talk about five reasons why co-working spaces are not profitable. So the title is Why Coworking Spaces Fail. And that's because titles are important, just like subject lines are important. So I used it. But as I was working through this, I thought, you know, there are lots of reasons that businesses, well, the term fail can mean fail to create a community, fail to deliver on members' needs, and a space could be profitable if it does those things fail to make members feel welcome? You know, lots of different things. I hear feedback on co-working spaces that aren't doing well, and it doesn't mean they're not profitable. So today's focus is really about co-working spaces that are not profitable. And most of these problems, I would say really, let's say all five of them are problems that are created by you before you even open. So if you're working on a first location or an expansion location, these are things that you absolutely must get right in order to be profitable, if that's your goal. Also want to be very appreciative of the fact that people start co-working spaces for many different reasons. Sometimes they're designed to be a not-for-profit. Sometimes they're designed to be a test. So there may be reasons why it's okay if your space breaks even or just makes a little profit that you have other whys for your business. But most of the folks that I work with in my programs want to create a sustainable, a financially sustainable co-working business. So I focus on helping those folks. And I have been running my co-working startup school program now for years since, let's see, maybe 2018 was the first year. So this episode, actually, this is an update of episode number 82, which was from 2018. I'm kind of updating it to the 2022 environment, a lot of the items are fairly similar. I think it's an important topic to revisit. So we're going to dive in. And just a reminder for those of you who don't, who think maybe I'm just podcasting for a living. I'm not podcasting for a living. (laughs) I, I run programs that help operators, landlords, and community managers run better co-working spaces, start and run better co-working spaces. So we run the co-working startup school. We run an accelerator program with that for those that want one-on-one coaching. We also run a management agreement course. We run a course that teaches brokers how to sell flex and understand the flex market. And we help community managers get certified as community managers and have access to ongoing training and development. I think that's all the things we do. And we have our Everything Coworking Academy, which is a membership for existing operators that are ready to work on their business and want to be connected to other operators and learn 
what's what and what's behind the scenes. So you can find all that info on our website at everythingcoworking.com, but I bring it up because I talk to a lot of operators every single month, lots of different geographies and all sorts of shapes and sizes. And I see these common threads in terms of challenges. So let's dive into number one. Number one showed up on number 82, which was in 2018, but I think this is even more relevant than ever before. Number one is that the location and or product mix don't align with the demand in your market and they don't align with your ideal customer avatar. Now, if you're like, what's an ideal customer avatar? You need to sign up for a co-working startup school that is module number one because it's super, super critical. So before even choosing a location, you want to do the work to get to know who are you going to serve? Who's your ideal customer? What will they buy? And how much will they pay for it? So a common mistake that gets made kind of without doing this due diligence is you install too many flex tests. And we just covered that in the two episodes ago. So if you haven't listened to that yet, you can go back and listen to that. And that's really just about not aligning your supply with the demand for that product in your market. So actually coming up on a very future, very close in future episode, we are interviewing a gentleman who is in a neighborhood near London who's doing very well with FlexDesk. So he reached out and said, I sell FlexDesk like crazy. Why is it working for me and not for others? And I said, let's get on the podcast and talk about that. So my hypothesis is that he just happened to do a good job of aligning his supply with the type of consumer and what they want in his neighborhood. So it's not really about the fact that there's a right or wrong product mix, although oftentimes there's one that works pretty well, which is more private space than less, but it's really about your market and lining up with the demand in your market. So we do a thorough process of understanding who is in your market, who's going to buy your product, what they're looking for. But you want to ask questions like who will consume co-working in your market? What do they do for work? Does their work pay for workspace or pay for them to get out of their house? Or are they paying for it out of pocket? They own their own business, they're a freelancer, or they're a remote employee that doesn't have a budget allocated for co-working. How do they manage their schedule? Like, do they need to get out of the house a couple of days a week, every day of the week? Never. What are their use cases for using a co-working space? Do heads down work? Do they go to do a meeting? Do they go to drink coffee and socialize? Like, what is it that they want out of a co-working space? And actually that third one, I might've used a tone that made you think I was sort of poking fun at that. And I actually don't think that we should poke fun at that because I think that that is a real use case that is becoming more and more popular for folks who have nice home offices and they don't need an office out of the home, but what they really need is a, a place of belonging and a place to connect with others. So what do your members need? Do they know about co-working or already, or do you have to educate them? Are they happy with their home office or are they looking for an alternative? What type of space do they need to support their use cases? Do they need meeting rooms? Do they need cool brainstorming spaces? Do they need photo studios? Do they need podcast studios? Do they need an amazing coffee bar with gorgeous booths? <laughs> um, then what level of space do they want? So this is becoming, I think, even more of an important discussion 
it always has been because you're creating a space that meets the needs of a certain segment of the population, not everyone, right? So, you know, Giovanni is my new co-host on the Flex Uncensored podcast. And we just released an episode and joked about having a drinking game every time somebody says Bonvoy. But I think it's such a useful analogy. So does your member want a residence in? Do they want an A-loft? Or do they want a Ritz-Carlton? And I don't think Ritz-Carlton is a Bonvoy brand. Actually, it might be. Actually, it is. I'm pretty sure it is. Or if we go with coffee brands, do they want a Dunkin' Donuts? Do they want a Starbucks? Or do they want a Phil's? And for those that you don't know, Phil's, they only do pour overs. It's very fancy schmancy. And they have lots of different varieties of coffee. So those are very different offerings, right? Like When we talk about restaurants, sometimes somebody will use that. I kept thinking of this phrase for some reason, cheap and cheerful, right? So your co-working space might be cheap and cheerful. Is that what your market wants or do they want something higher end? I actually have thank you to Amanda who reached out and requested a session on what will happen to shared workspace in a recession. And I was reading a post from another, somebody else that I follow, and he was talking about the fitness industry. And he said that, you know, in terms of CrossFit, we should have a drinking game about how many times I mentioned CrossFit. The consumer wants coaching, which is a high-end product, right? It's not one-on-one, it's often group, although lots of CrossFit gyms also offer personal training, but it's very different from a 24-hour fitness, right? Where you're going to go in and you're going to do your own thing, but you're paying $49 a month. Most CrossFit gyms are at least $150 a month much more than that if you live in the Bay Area. So he argues that in a recession, folks that are in a category where they're purchasing high-end services are less likely to pull back on those because they have jobs that don't get as impacted during a recession. So I would be curious to hear, I'm organizing a group to talk about that topic, but it's something to think about. If you have a cheap and cheerful co-working space and your members get impacted by a recession, then you will struggle. If you're running the Ritz-Carlton, then you may have a group of members who are not as impacted by a recession. So you are more resilient. Okay. And then your ultimate success is based on getting the supply and demand equation right. So we talked about this specifically around flex desks a couple episodes ago, but it's really about everything, every decision you make about your business model and what you offer. And this is all before you even open your doors. There are a lot of very big decisions that get made. And I am clearly biased because I run a program to help people make all these decisions. I think that it is very challenging to get go through this process on your own without a framework. And I think it's very dangerous. So you don't have to go through our programs, but make sure you get support from somebody who understands the business model. I often hear people say they use score mentors and I'm all for that to support your business plan, but if they don't know the business model and they can't look at your plan and give you advice on it, aside from sort of like technical advice, you need somebody who really knows the industry and can give you helpful advice. Okay. So when you do choose a location, you have to choose one that aligns really well with your ideal customer that you've identified has demand for the product that you will sell. So you've decided how you're going to serve this customer. You've decided whether it's a Dunkin' Donuts or a Phil's, 
and you have done all the work to figure out like what their use cases are going to be. This is not easy. You have to do market research. You have to talk to a lot of people, not just your best friends. You have to really understand the market and do, do the work. So you've done all that work and now you have to find a location that aligns with that. And the size and the cost of build out and the lease terms must also work for your business model. So I kind of combined two reasons that spaces aren't profitable into one. So bear with me. We're kind of on one B right now. Okay. So location, don't choose it because it's the only one that's available. Don't choose it because it's the least expensive. Don't choose it because it's the smallest. And we'll talk about that later. Also don't choose it just because it's a second generation space, which I am a huge advocate of, but we run into challenges with office sizes that are too big for a profitable co-working space and second generation space. Nobody said this business was easy. It is actually really not easy to start because there's so many things you have to get right and there are kind of contradictions in here. So I love a second generation space. I see this over and over again from folks who, if you haven't lived the model yet, it's really hard to understand the nuances. So if you have a second generation space, then you have offices that are already built out. Those offices are probably much bigger than what a co-working space office would be. So a co-working space office for one person, you know, could be 36 square feet. That's a WeWork size or a micro office size. It might be 57 square feet. It might be 80 square feet. Once you get to 80, you might be able to fit two 24, uh, sorry, 48 inch wide desks in an 80 square foot. 90 is for sure a two person office in co-working in many markets. So if you have pre-existing offices that are 140 square feet, that could be four, a four-person office in co-working terms, right? So all of a sudden, if that's the size of all of your offices, you're sitting on a huge inventory of four-person offices, which most of us will not build if we start from scratch. You would only choose those if you have to live with them in a pre-existing space. The challenge with those is if you started from scratch and you were going to build your offices, then you would sell a four-person office for say $2,000, say each seat's $500 ahead, but you don't have enough demand for all these four-person offices. And so two people don't want to pay $2,000. They want to pay $1,000. And so you have to sell those offices for half of what you could sell them for if they were the right size. That might be hard to understand, but basically you know, if it's too big, but somebody doesn't value all that extra space, they're not going to pay the per square foot price for it that you need to get for it on your pro forma. So what you really need is instead of, you know, four, four person offices, you need 16, two person offices. So when we use second generation space, we love reusing walls and it tends to be much more manageable to get into, but we might need to make some adjustments. We can't just like walk in and plug and play. And I think a lot of folks assume that's going to work and they have very low expectations about what it costs to start a co-working space. So second generation doesn't mean move in ready. It means less work than starting from scratch. So that's super important. I don't want to, we could do a whole episode on that. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on that, but that is a you know a challenging mistake that folks will make when they're choosing a location. So 
people get very like emotional and want to move quickly and want to go with something that's on the market today when they decide to open a co-working space. And if you're listening, you know, that's you. Cause I've talked to lots of those people in the last few months and sometimes, you know, fate intervenes and things move too slowly. And so you're forced to wait until more things are on the market. And that turns out to be positive. So you don't want to make a choice on a location that is not the right fit because it's the only one available or because it's the cheapest. You have to run the model and it has to align with the demand of your consumer. If you build a Dunkin' Donuts for a Phil's consumer, they won't come. And so it doesn't matter if it's the cheapest, right? Does that make sense? So we'll talk about the smallest. The smallest we talk about um, in number three, spoiler alert. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that quite yet. So do choose a space because you've looked at several options and you've waited for the one that is the right size and you've negotiated an LOI on more than one space so that you have truly negotiated and gotten you know, the best deal that you can get out of one or two locations and you're getting the right deal terms that align with your financial goals and you've confirmed this with a pro forma. So I think the challenges I see, the mistakes I see people make are they have a budget. And so they create a space that meets their startup budget, but it doesn't actually align with their financial goals. So their financial goals are much bigger than what they can accomplish with their startup budget. So it's okay if those two things align and your expectations are set appropriately. But if you are trying to achieve meaningful profit, you have to put money into a space generally to do that, at least your first space. We are seeing some very exciting deals getting done by landlords who are highly motivated. And I've gotten several calls in the last couple of weeks from landlords who are interested in doing flex and exploring and folks that are getting, and then on the operator side, operators that are getting opportunities to do creative deal structures. And I've seen my co-working startup school folks get amazing deals. Their lease rates are reasonable and the landlord is paying for the build out. So that stuff can happen. So you want to hang in. And these are the two that build us that were getting paid for were first spaces for these operators. So it just happens to be that they're in markets that are giving them favorable terms. So it can happen. So you want to wait for the right option. So Number two kind of gets into the more into the deals, deal structure. The second reason that spaces aren't profitable is because the real estate deal is bad. So again, this is something, this is these are decisions that you make before you even open. You cannot outmarket or out operate a bad real estate deal. If you don't sign a good lease with good terms, you can't fix that. You just can't. This is fundamentally, the business model is very real estate driven. You have to get that right. And so if you're going through this process and the putting all the pieces together is not making sense to you, and it's not crystal clear how all the pieces play together and how the real estate deal impacts your pro forma, you want to get some help from folks who can help you sort of see really clearly the entire picture. So if you sign a bad real estate deal, you could have a space that's 100% occupied, but not be cash flow positive. So you've done all the things right in terms of creating the right product, creating the right price, marketing, you've attracted your ideal customer and your space is full, 
but your real estate deal was not good and you're not cash flow positive. You could have 100% occupied space and not be able to pay your build out costs back in a reasonable amount of time. And what's reasonable really depends on the length of the lease, the upside in the deal, all sorts of things. So we won't go into that, but you might be sitting on a five. I've seen people sign five year leases and take them three years to pay back the build out. So two years is not very much time to generate profit to make this project worth doing if you care about you know return on investment and profit. Hey, I just wanted to jump in really quickly before we continue with our discussion. If you're working on opening a co-working space, I want to invite you to join me for my free masterclass, Three Behind-the-Scenes Secrets to Opening a Co-working Space. If you're working on opening a co-working space, I want to share the three decisions that I've seen successful operators make when they're creating their co-working business. The masterclass is totally free. It's about an hour and includes some Q&A. If you'd like to join me, you can register at everythingcoworking.com forward slash masterclass. If you already have a co-working space, I want to make sure you know about Community Manager University. Community Manager University is a training and development platform for community managers, and it can be for owner-operators. It has content training, resources, templates from day one to general manager. The platform includes many courses that cover the major buckets of the community manager role from community management, operations, sales and marketing, finance, and leadership. The content is laid out in a graduated learning path. So the community manager can identify what content is most relevant to them, depending on their experience, and kind of jump in from there. We provide a live brand new training every single month for the community manager group. We also host a live Q&A call every single month so that the community managers can work through any challenges that they're having or opportunities, get ideas from other community managers, build their own peer network. We also have a private Slack group for the group. So if you're interested in learning more, you can go to everythingcoworking.com forward slash community manager. Your lease required you to start paying full rent two months after you opened and you ran out of working capital before you turned cash flow positive. So I see folks do this all the time. They work with a broker who doesn't understand that this business model requires a lot of free rent. Now, I will say if you're getting a free build out, then you're probably not also going to get a year of free rent. It can happen. I know of a couple of instances, but that's like a unicorn scenario. So go ahead and have high expectations. But if you don't have to use the capital that you have raised or saved to build this business for the build out, which is amazing because you don't own that building, you just lease it, then you probably will have to use it to support your, your other startup costs and getting to an occupancy that will make you profitable. It's very hard to know what occupancy will be profitable for any given space. It might be 50%, it might be 80%. So you might have to be pretty full in order to break even. It depends on so many factors. But if you have a really strong pro forma and you've been conservative with that pro forma and all of the assumptions are conservative and accurate, then you should be able to tell what your profitability level is. So if your lease requires you to start paying full rent, you know, immediately, or you only got two months of free rent, that's not enough time to fill up. It might take you 18 months to fill up. It depends on the size of your space, right? So it's really 
hard to know. And we're going to talk about that later, but that's kind of a, a preview into another reason that spaces are not profitable. You want to make sure that you have a 25% margin with your conservative assumptions with your real estate deal. So a couple of other challenges I see, your triple net lease includes really high OPEX, making your total rent obligation really high, given the model that you've built and the pricing power that you have. So it's really hard to say like what rent level is too high. Well, it depends. Are you in a market where you can price your offices really high, right? So if you're in a market where folks you know, want Dunkin' Donuts and they want cheap and cheerful, then your lease rate and your all-in expenses have to reflect that, right? So you have to be able to put that into the model and put your pricing into the model and your floor plan into the model. And you need to get a 25% margin without assuming that you're overselling your flex desk three times. So that's another mistake that I see folks make is that they're not kind of looking at the all-in obligations that they have and that they just can't price the offices high enough to make it work. So if you're in a smaller market, you have to get a really good deal on rent. It can work. I mean, that's the advantage. If you're in a smaller market, usually your rent is cheap, but you have to then have those smaller offices because your office prices are going to be like reflect market rent basically in terms of like relative strength. So if your rent is low, then it's generally easier for individuals to get their own space. If rent is really high, like, so I operated in Palo Alto and it was almost impossible for an individual to get commercial space because it's so expensive huge barrier. It's expensive and nobody wants to commit to that type of expense for such a long term. And so our office prices were very high. The other mistake I see people make, which is kind of related to things we're talking about, you aren't working with a broker or you're working with a broker who does not understand the model at all. And I realize these folks are hard to find. I've gotten emails from folks saying, I simply cannot find a broker at all, period, in my market who will give me the time of day, much less understands the model. So those folks get very tempted to negotiate on behalf of themselves with a landlord who has negotiated hundreds of deals in his or her life. And this is your first. So I know we all think we're brilliant and we are all brilliant in our own ways, but a commercial lease is a very, very big deal and a very big liability. And so you need to have a professional on your team. So we cover that in our co-working startup school as well. Okay, so just to review our first two reasons that co-working spaces aren't profitable. Number one is the location and or product mix don't align with the demand in your market and your ideal customer avatar. Number two is that your real estate deal is bad. Now, realize you have not put up a website yet. You, have, you haven't done anything for the business and you have made two mistakes that will completely impede your ability to be successful. So number three is your space is too small. And I know a lot of you listening have small spaces. So take this all with a grain of salt because you might start a small co-working space for many reasons that work for you. But being meaningfully profitable is not one of those reasons. A small co-working space just doesn't have enough inventory to create enough revenue to drive profitability unless you have some other revenue stream that's doing it. So maybe you're killing it on meeting rooms or events, or you have a social membership and you're just overselling the heck out of it. You know, it's a great example of this is Orange Theory. I had a friend from business school who had the Orange Theory license 
in Palo Alto. And that place was like a thousand square feet. And she said she had a thousand members paying, I don't know, 200, $250 a month. That's crazy. So there are models that work without needing a lot of space. Generally, co-working is not one of them because generally you don't have an offering that you can sell that many times. Like she was basically selling memberships and people weren't showing up, right? So it worked and people with enough disposable income that they just, they didn't cancel. That is not common in co-working. So if you want to be meaningfully profitable and you don't have some other why behind your co-working space, maybe you start your co-working space as a test. Maybe you're kind of inching into it and you're simply not willing to commit to the liability of a larger space. Totally get it. It happens all the time, but don't expect to be meaningfully profitable. Maybe not profitable at all because you just don't have enough inventory to create revenue to drive profitability. You might be profitable if you're going to own and operate it. If you're trying to hire staff, that's going to take all your profit. It's going to be very, very hard. So again, you may have your reasons for wanting to do that, but if you want meaningful profits, you can't start small. So you might also believe that you're going to oversell your seats enough to drive a small profit. But the other challenge with really small spaces, it's hard to build the type of space that people want to spend a lot of time in, in a small space. Right. Think about why we leave our home offices. Like they're too small. They're not designed, you know, well, they don't get a good enough light or the dog barking or the kids are yelling, you know, those kinds of reasons or something like, but the sort of it's challenging to have a small space that can knock it out of the park in terms of consumer experience. Cause you just can't have the variety. You don't have the square footage to create the variety of types of spaces that your end users probably want. And when I say that small, I mean less than 2000 square feet. Once you start kind of inching above that, you'll have more room to kind of, you know, put things together. I have seen beautiful designs. I have startup school students who do small spaces or are working on small spaces that are gorgeous and that I would join. So it's not all of them. You have to be really intentional, really, really intentional. And you have to hire a designer, professional designer. So, you know, you have to just have to be really careful if you're going to DIY a very small space you may just not have the outcome that compels people to join. Again, it goes back to who's your consumer? What will they buy? Will they buy space in a small space that is not very well diversified in terms of of what they're offering? You know, when does a small space work? If you don't need to drive significant profit, if you have another revenue source, we talked about that. I love like the work club concept, the social club concept, where it's work plus other things. You know, we're seeing concept with cafes in them, with smaller workspace and other amenities. I think that's really interesting. If it has amenities that are desirable to today's consumer, and as I mentioned, it's intentionally designed to be super intentional on small spaces, just like tiny homes, right? Tiny homes can be totally amazing, but you have to be so thoughtful about where does everything go and how does it fit and how does it create a good experience for the person who lives in it? What is too small? So I don't even really want to give a number because it's hard to know until you run a pro forma and you use that pro forma to build out a model that is based on the type of business you're going to deliver. And then you have to measure it against your profit goals because everyone has a different goal for their business. So it's really hard to say. I had a broker just send me an email. Um, Someone had referred them to me. So thank you if you're listening. And he said he had some space in Sacramento that is about 3,400 square feet. 
And he said it has 13 offices, which is pretty good density for 3,400 square feet, but I suspect not staffable. I suspect if you ran a pro forma on that, it would feel like a lot of offices that you could do well with. But if you're paying rent, I bet you can't staff it because it's too small. So you'd have to have an unstaffed space, which is happening. So there's a group that was my very first, some of my very first members in my Chicago co-working space. They are starting a suburban model of co-working starting in the Chicago area. I hope I can get them on the podcast that is not staffed. So I'm super interested in what that looks like. So that is an option that may may or may not be the type of business that you want to run, but that's where the profitability challenges really come in. Usually from like a design perspective, can I offer the types of spaces that people want to buy in a small space without being too like crowded and just kind of, you know, challenging and can I staff it if that's the model that you want to run? So the third reason that co-working spaces tend to, or sorry, not tend to, one reason a co-working space may not be profitable is it's too small. Okay. The fourth reason is your space is not well-capitalized enough to survive your ramp-up phase. So I started to kind of go down this path on the real estate deal because it's related. So you might have a smaller space in a smaller market that has some pent-up demand and just doesn't have a lot of affordable, flexible office options. And it might fill up really quickly. And you might, no problem, six months, done. And you know your startup capital, no problem, I'm cash flow positive, six months, good to go. Larger spaces, 15,000, 20,000 plus, you know, in markets that have other options, they might take 18 months to fill up to 90 to 95% capacity, which is kind of your stabilization rate. You never probably are going to be 100% full, although it happens. So it could take 18 months, and that's a long time to get to stabilization. So that you might be cash flow positive, but not at stabilization. So you might be kind of eking out a little profit but it might take you 18 months to get to the point where you're like, we are cooking, what do they say? Cooking with butter, cooking with oil. I don't know, whatever, you know, until you feel like you're just rocking and rolling and life is good. And that number varies, but I don't think most people go that far out when they're thinking about getting to stabilization. We have a pro forma template. It's super awesome, automated model and it assumes 18 months. So you have to manually change that assumption in our template to get out of the 18 month assumption for ramp up. So in order to set yourself up with enough runway to survive this ramp up period, because when you open, maybe you've sold 20% of your capacity. That would mean you did a stellar pre-sales effort, which a lot of people don't get to because they're so overwhelmed by all the other things they're doing. So if you got to 20%, that would be amazing. And so you're, you're kind of starting from scratch, right? You, you don't have all revenue. You're every day you're building every day you're hustling and every week your revenue is growing, but it probably not growing as fast as you had hoped it would. So you need a really realistic pro forma and ramp up estimates. So in order to set yourself up with enough runway to build from scratch while paying rent, then you either need a healthy free rent period or you need a management agreement type of deal where the landlord is paying out of pocket for operating and marketing expenses, which may not even be the most common deal that we see happening. I hear a lot of revenue share, joint venture type approach approaches where the operator is still coming in with capital and paying a base rent, for example, or just you know doing a revenue share, but paying all the expenses. 
but the landlord might be paying for the build out. So we talked about that earlier in terms of the real estate deal. If you don't have to pay for the build out, then you can use your startup capital to fund your first couple of years and those potential shortfalls. But it's super, super challenging for spaces that don't have enough money in the bank to get through those shortfall months. So be prepared. Okay, the fifth reason that co-working spaces aren't profitable is because they don't have a marketing budget or a marketing plan. So this is not super common. I find I get a lot of folks in my startup school that have a marketing background and I think it's a great fit for this type of business because they tend to really understand this whole idea of matching a product to a consumer, that you're building what a consumer wants, not what you want. They tend to prioritize marketing. You know, they invest in a website. And I don't mean they need to spend thousands and thousands of dollars. I have a running list of excellent Wix co-working websites that all come from members that we have and some other examples. So I just mean they really put a lot of work into the user experience of their website. They, you know, might invest in, in creating a brand, like great photo assets and imagery and messaging. And they do content marketing. So they send email newsletters. They're ready to run ads if they're that's appropriate for their market. So they're really thinking about their sales funnel. And generally, they still might make mistakes on their real estate deal, but they're getting the location and the product mix and pricing right because they're just kind of wired to think about matching that to the end user. So I see a lot of success in that, but I also see folks who don't come from a marketing background at all struggle with making these decisions. So again, if you don't come from a marketing background, get a marketing person kind of on your mentorship team or your advisory team or you know, pay a consultant to help you with these things. Because again, these are all things that are happening before you even open. Most of these marketing successes certainly are long-term over time, but you know, are things that you're working on in order to kick off the business. It is almost impossible to fix the marketing you can fix, right? I love that. Fixable. But I would say the first four, if you get these wrong, you can't fix it or it's very expensive to fix. So again, the five reasons are the location and or the product mix don't align with the demand in your market. You could make some tweaks, but if you built all the wrong size offices, very hard to fix, very expensive to fix. Your real estate deal is bad. You're probably stuck with that real estate deal for five years, maybe 10. You have to get that right. Your space is too small. You have to write out your lease. You basically cannot fix that problem. You are not well-capitalized enough to survive your ramp-up phase. You could raise some more money. At this point, it's probably friends and family in order to get through the ramp-up phase if the other aspects you've done well. You've got the right location, the right offering, the right offices, the right real estate deal. Then, and your space is not too small, then you should can borrow money to fix, fix the problem of not being capitalized enough. And then the fifth is that you don't have a marketing budget or a marketing plan. That is fixable but you have to recognize it and you have to be willing to invest. I will say, again, these are all things that I see happen. They don't apply all the time and everywhere. I was talking to a very strong operator today with multiple locations, and they said that they have not been spending money on marketing 
and that they're full in some of their markets. So they said, you know, they just kind of hadn't been and they kind of have to get back in the game. And so there are sometimes reasons why we don't need marketing. We're not doing marketing. But if you looked at this operator's business, you would have realized that they certainly know what they're doing. So, but again, not all of these apply to all situations, but I see these challenges more often than not. These are the issues that result in people not having a space that's profitable, which is a lot of people want. And again, you might, there are lots of decisions you can make. So Brian Watson's episode on how to automate smaller spaces is one of our top YouTube videos. So I know people are like really looking for solutions. If you aren't staffing and you're operating in markets with great demand like he is, then I think you can do it. In order to make meaningful profit, you have to have multiple spaces, right? He's not starting just one, he's starting many. So keep that in mind. There are ways to do all these things and not all of these are the reasons that you know co- all co-working spaces that aren't profitable, aren't profitable, but I'm just sharing with you what I often see. So please get these things right before you invest, before you spend money, before you sign a lease, all those things. These are very preventable if you follow a framework. And we offer that framework in our co-working startup school, um, or you can find it elsewhere through other expertise, but don't do this alone. There's a lot on the line. Okay. We will see you on the podcast next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you like what you heard, tell a friend, hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. It makes a huge difference in helping others like you find us. If you'd like to learn more about our education and coaching programs, head over to everythingcoworking.com. We'll see you next week.